welcome to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense. From culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. As an industry, many of us have been back open now for nearly a month and I'm hearing mixed reports on performance. In the main, pretty positive, certainly not in central London, which was described to me as a polo mint this week. Completely empty in the middle, but the suburbs circle actually doing okay. I think helped by the warm weather, anyone with outside seating space is doing okay. And on a personal level, our first week was around 50% down, but it's been an improving picture each week. And with this sunny week, it looks like we may even beat our year on year for the first time this week. So certainly worth opening for. However, we have got to be conscious that the government are getting nervous and the brakes are going back on. Leicester, Manchester, bowling alleys, weddings, rumours of second waves in Europe. Personally, I'm making the most of every single day that we can trade. We're used to taking the majority of our cash in the summer months and I'm extremely nervous about the winter and what may happen once windows doors and terraces are closed. Anyway, you've not tuned in to listen to me and I have another outstandingly experienced guest for you to listen to with a great deal more knowledge than me after many decades in our industry facing many disasters. Robin Shepherd is the chairman and founder of Bespoke Hotels and Bespoke look after over 5,000 hotel rooms, 6,000 team members and 500 million pounds worth of assets but they particularly interested me because of many of you regular listeners will know i love the independent hospitality sector those businesses run by genuine hospitality professionals who care more about the customer than necessarily purely net profit though of course we do need both and bespoke are fascinating because although they've become a significant player they keep their personal brand and business very much behind the scenes most of their venues are independently owned and bespoke simply provide some of the benefits of brand with consistency of service perhaps some centralized professional team members and some of the benefits that obviously do come at scale but at the same time none of the venues are forced into a one size fits all box they are genuinely venues that have a hospitality soul and many of them you would know in their own right purposely having no idea that bespoke are in any way involved anyway i'll let robin tell the rest of that story and robin has a wealth of experience pre-bespoke from gm positions throughout some fine establishments to launching a british bottled water brand and even writing a book about his time being bedbound and paralyzed he's very well known in the hospitality sector and i'm sure you will enjoy hearing his views he doesn't hold back on his political appraisals and we touch on the impact of otas and turning them from foe to friend even broxit crops up broxit brexit and who the vat cut is for 
which venues have reopened and why, how that's going, and Robin's predictions for the future. My apologies about some of the random noises going on in the background of Robin's office. There are a few little interruptions as emails come through early on, uh, but there are also some lovely long quiet periods, and that, I'm afraid, is the challenge of recording remotely. And remember, finally, if you can do me a favour and you can buy me a beer or help support the podcast so that I can continue to invest time, energy and tech into getting the very best guests, please head over to humansofhospitality.co.uk forward slash donate and follow your nose. It's super easy and makes me super happy and keeps this podcast in the air. Right. Enjoy the chat. Robin Shepherd, Chairman of Bespoke Hotels, thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast today. Hugely appreciated. Can I just ask, Robin, where in the world are you? Are you at a hotel or are you at home? Or? I'm in cloudy Oxfordshire today, just north of Woodstock and Blenheim Palace. Okay, nice. Is this is this your house or an yeah, office? It's, it's the house which has doubled up as my office uh, since the 23rd of March. Okay, a date ingrained in your memory. <laughs> for most people, yeah. I suspect. Yeah, un- unfortunately so. Um, so for those of you who don't know Bespoke Robin, can you just uh, explain a little bit uh, about the business that you look after? Because uh, it's pretty significant in size now, isn't it? Well, Bespoke started about 20 years ago when uh, my principal partner, Hayden Fenton, and I got together and we acquired a hotel just outside Stratford-upon-Avon called Billsley Manor and very generously gave ourselves a management contract to run our own asset and went into the marketplace and said, "Um, we can do this for you. And to our astonishment, half a dozen hotels of an independent caliber uh, decided they would entrust the running of their hotels to us. Um, The first few years were pretty tough. We had foot and mouth disease not very long after we first launched the company, which uh, had a similarly devastating effect on travel plans throughout the UK that COVID has had. Um, It seems like a lifetime ago, but thankfully uh, we got over that and the market returned really quite quickly. I'm just praying that we'll see something similar this time as we come out of lockdown. Yeah, Um, it's one of the reasons that I'm keen to speak to you because you've got uh, a number of decades of experience and and quite a lot of diverse experience. So I'm I'm definitely going to come back to, uh, so yes, so COVID and how you see us coming out the other side of that. Um, But your your career in this side, I heard quite an entertaining story. So I think you were 15 and three quarters, was it, when you first got into into hospitality and you were almost put off for life? Do you mind? I know you've told it before, but do you mind just sharing that story again, Robin? Well, I took a variety of holiday jobs when I was a schoolboy, one of which was working in a West Country hotel, which will remain nameless. And on day four, I turned up for work uh, to see uh, outside the Polynesian restaurant, so-called Polynesian because it had pineapple on every dish. Um, The general manager of the hotel, who was very tall and thin, draped across the bar, three sheets to the wind. Um, He was known affectionately by everybody as Streaky Bacon. I didn't realize this was his nickname, being 15 and three quarters, and I called him Mr. Bacon. Um, uh, And noticing that he was fairly inebriated after the schooners of sherry in the afternoon, I said to him, are you all right, Mr. Bacon? No, I'm not chuffing well all right. He pirouetted on the spot with his right arm raised in the air. My wife's just run off with the restaurant manager collapsed, uh, knocking himself out on a coffee table and smashing the glass ashtray into smithereens. Um, I put a napkin over his head and dragged him by the armpits into the nearest broom cupboard, and I remember horse whispering into his ear, does this mean you won't be taking the orders tonight, sir? Um, I got a comatose response. We had a sink or swim dinner dance for 170 people. 
uh, and we sank without trace. It was quite the most ghastly evening, which we showed no skill or competence at, and I was completely out of my depth. And when I got home, I said to my parents, I never, ever, ever, ever want to work in hotels again. And that was it. I, that's all I've done since. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, you can see where uh, John Cleese got his Forty Towers inspiration from with moments like that. I think yeah, can't you? plenty of those over the years, and still and still doing John Cleese impressions from time to time now, not knowing I'm doing so. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's easily done. Um, so you also had a number of you know GM roles uh, across quite a diverse range of properties. Uh, was there a favourite over the years? Well, I think in terms of aesthetics and the quality of the downpipes and the floorboards and the and the authenticity of the property Bodiscathlon Hall up in North Wales just outside Clanbidno was my favourite it sat in 200 acres of parkland views of Snowdonia and the Conway Estuary it was quite quite beautiful and at the time it was the forefront of the country house hotel uh, movement which became a rash all over the UK as um, high net worth started to invest there gotten gains from elsewhere into into the hotel business and um, uh, I was in in the forefront of that so that was a a great audition and and from a um, a beauty point of view perhaps the most beautiful but the the one that um, was my finishing school I guess was the Ligon Arms Hotel in Broadway which is an enormous privilege to work at uh, working for a gentleman called Douglas Barrington who was the chairman of the company uh, and an inspirational but very hard taskmaster and I made so many mistakes there which I'll never forget as to how not to do things that eventually you sharpen up and uh, remember the things that you can do well. So Douglas was a was a very very exacting taskmaster. So how old were you when you were working with Douglas? Uh, Twenty seven through to thirty, I guess. I had three happy years, and at a time when the dollar was incredibly strong against the pound, so we had wall to wall Americans everywhere. We were turning Americans away pretty much every day because we just were full all the time. It was a we didn't have to worry about where the customers were coming from. The Legon was very much on the tourist map and uh, awash with uh, international travellers. Wow, that that sounds like a, uh, a a utopia. I think we should have ended with that. That was a really positive statement. I think we should yeah. just—if only we could stop our hospitality journey there, uh, Robin. Durand, but it gets more Durand, challenging. Duran Duran were top of the pops in those days, and it's also very sadly about the last time that Laura Ashley was seen in public uh, when she sadly. Um, fell in her cottage nearby about a day later um so uh, it, it, those two um, milestones are, are writ large in in the history of uh, uh, both uh, craft and musical history of our country i suppose yeah absolutely yeah interesting times so would you say that was the uh the hotel where you you learned the most under under douglas's reign cool. that was where uh, the, the very rough product was was home and I, I definitely left that hotel much much wiser and much better informed and probably better at influencing people and getting um, people to do things in as compassionate a way and con- collegiate ways I, I, I could um, uh, and I, I, I learned a huge amount so yes I'm, I'm, I shall forever be grateful to having had that time yeah Nice. Um, somewhere along this journey as well, before we come back into the hotel world, you, you managed to find the time to set up a mineral water company, Tainan. What, what on earth was the catalyst uh, for that? Well, I left the um, uh, Ligon to go and run uh, or open a hotel for uh, what was Ladbrokes for three weeks uh, prior to them buying the Hilton Group three weeks later. 
and I took over a property called the Royal Berkshire in Ascot. I thought it would be a really good idea to have our first child, move house, and open a hotel from scratch all in the same month. My wife didn't think that was a very good idea. Um, but during that period, the company I was working for seemed to quite like my attention to detail, and I was asked to give a presentation to fellow managers and deputy managers in the company on attention to detail. Couldn't think what to call the subject, so um, I noticed over a meal I was drinking Perrier, which was at that time a ubiquitous generic term for mineral water. I entitled a presentation to the general managers and deputy managers of the new Hilton Group, entitled The Bubbles in Perrier Are Too Big, on the premise that this might make them pay attention to the detail of what is a good accompaniment for food. And at the time, there was a movement away from tap water into bottled water as being de rigueur on our dining room tables in the UK. Did a bit of research, discovered that Badois was an infinitely nicer water than Perrier with a meal, although Perrier was great on its own. Um, but as a byproduct of that, discovered there was no good-looking British bottle um, out there in the marketplace. At home, we'd always had a preference for sea salt and uh, to keep the salt separated from the silver outer on the dining table at home, we used to have um, a blue glass liner. And up until that point when I spotted this, blue glass had always been uh, synonymous with nil by mouth and poison in pharmacies. But the generations had moved on, and I don't think that was seen as a, as a message uh, or a colour that meant uh, danger any longer. So we took the risk and set up a company which uh, a year later um, launched itself. And three months after we launched, um, Perrier had a benzene scare, which meant they had antifreeze traces in their water. They removed their entire stock from every shelf in Britain, which suddenly meant that every supermarket was on the phone saying, can you get me some water tomorrow? Um, so we overtraded for best part of six years, which sounds great, but actually the reality of having so much demand you can't keep up with it is almost as perilous as not enough demand. So it was quite an interesting time. I gave up hotel keeping for a bit to run the company um, during that period until eventually I started to sell some shares in the business and over a 10-year period sold my shareholding down. Um, and eventually went back into hotels where um, I, I was offered a chance to operate the Bath Spa Hotel in Bath. My mother wasn't very well. She lived in Bath. The school for my children was 200 yards from uh, where the hotel was, so I thought that would be a very good domestic move. And I had six years of great fun uh, working for Forte and uh, until the Granada takeover. Learned an enormous amount again then, but it was... It was a real pleasure to run that uh, hotel and uh, uh, probably the, the point at which I was uh, at the height of my general management skills, I would I would suggest. Okay, you, you, you'd learn a bit by then. Sounds like you would have learned a hell of a lot. That's a, that's a pretty interesting uh, time. Like you say, it would be perceived as perfect timing, I suppose, with, with Perrier removing, but I can imagine the stresses. A lot of people want to get out of hospitality it's renowned for being a very tough sector you know anti-social hours and they and they look for opportunities you found one and it lured you back in what what was the thing that made you want to get back into into hotel ops well i i i've made enough money to pay for my kids education and put a little bit aside and um i eventually had sold all my shares in tenant so i no longer had a role 
Um, I'd always kept my hand in with a little bit of consultancy in hotels because I suppose through and through I am an hotelier at heart. Um, and I, I suppose a combination of domestic circumstances and the thought, well, what do I do next? Well, the, the thing I'm trained to do is to be a hotelier. Let's go back and do that. And um, just to make you smile, uh, what I did say to Rocco Forti at the time of the interview was that I had my grandfather's school cap with me, which was from when the um, building had been a boys' school, and my grandfather had gone to school in, in the building at the turn of the 1900s. So there seemed like a, a link to the building, uh, which uh, attracted me. Um, in terms of timing, the seismic event at the time was Chris Patton's removable from, removal from governor of the sorry, the chairman of the Conservative Party and his installation um, as governor in um, Hong Kong. Uh, and, of course, that's come back to bite us right now in terms of what's gone full circle in Hong Kong. Um, and you look back at those 25, nearly 30 years of have passed in that time to, 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 to witness the transformation of Hong Kong as an annex to the British Empire into being somewhere that very soon is just going to be sub completely subsumed by China and will no longer stand as the free trade port it's always been. Yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? I, I think, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how we resolve that one. Well, I, I think it's just inevitable. We kind of knew this when we let go all those years ago. So, um, But quite what Priti Patel is going to do about 3 million uh, exiles from Hong Kong coming into this country, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure she'll mess it up. However, <laughs> she, will, she will fail miserably, bless her. Yeah, well, I wonder how many will actually want to come. It's going to be interesting, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, I spent a bit, a bit of time. You, have you been? You've been to Hong Kong, presumably, have you? Yeah, and it's a breathtaking, fascinating, fast-paced place. Um, not somewhere I'd choose to live, but it, it's exhilarating, no question. Um, my concern is not the people who will want to leave Hong Kong to come to the UK. It's probably the ones who will need to leave Hong Kong to come to the UK because they have no choice. Um, Fascinating, it'll do a great wonder for the dynamism of the UK. They're, they're incredibly hard working, industrious people, and very bright, um, and very fast moving. So, might also improve whiskey sales, I guess. You never know. <laughs> always, always a positive slant, Robin. Good work. Yeah, you, you might be right. So, uh, what was the trigger then? You know, because I, I love the concept of uh, bespoke in the fact that you know this is called the humans of hospitality. It's all about the human beings, I guess, rather than the brands. And, and it strikes me with bespoke that you recognise that there's clearly some benefits to brand a, around sort of corporate structure, around maybe economies of scale, around uh, I guess the professionalism that that running uh, a number of venues can bring. But you seem to be very passionate about keeping the kind of independent spirit. And, and not, you know, almost the, the brand element working behind the scenes. What was your motivation to launch Bespoke? Uh, I think it was the single asset that we first spotted, which had belonged to Queen's Moat Houses, um, called Billsley Manor, which was a 41-bedroom country house hotel, 11 acres of parkland, handy for Coventry motor car traffic, handy for Shakespeare tourism, um, and yet fiercely special in terms of the unique building, the look and feel of the place, minstrels gallery, um, beautiful coats of armour all over the place. So it, it had plenty of pageant and, and joy attached to it anyway. Um, and we felt that every time we went to do a presentation for another hotel, it tended to be a high net worth who was interviewing us by saying, I'm too old to carry on running, I can't sell, my family don't want to run. Whatever the reason was, we were brought in. And suddenly we had a very dis disparate group 
of hotels. Our working title when we first set the company up was Furlong Hotel, simply because my partner likes horse racing. But every time we did a pitch, we realized we were using expressions like tailor-made, custom-fit, uh, and so on. So we just realized that we, we had to make the change, and uh, bespoke was the one word that kept coming back and back. And as soon as we said, right, let's call ourselves bespoke hotels, everything else just fell into place, and we realized it was the right thing to do. Interestingly, when we first set out, most of our competitors who were running management companies sitting behind Holiday Inn Express or Indigo's or um, Mercure's um, wanted to homogenize and make all their properties pretty um, similar. We went the other way and said, no, we want every hotel to be a local hero and we want a really soft brand behind it so that we can benefit from all the scale and the uh, scaffolding that you would expect a group to have head of IT, head of purchasing, head of sales, head of marketing, head of revenue, and all those sort of central services that we put in, but without having to make everything look the same from the customer point of view. Um, and where we've had a chance to invent new hotels like Gotham and Manchester and Brooklyn in the same town, we've been very keen to build new story and create uh, a new history into those buildings. Um, I, I, I do fear for a property like the George Hotel in Edinburgh, which will always be known as the George, has always been known as the George, but it's had, I think, 10 different names uh, overarching it in the last 10 years. What does the local taxi driver think? Is it the Kempinski? Is it the principal? No, it's the George. Um, and I, I just think if you want to be an international success, getting the local story is so important. And let's create some provenance and some engagement from the local market who will be the greatest ambassadors for you on a wider scale as you start to attract business so that's the basic tenant of what we've been about for 20 years yeah which is a, you know a relatively unusual uh, approach i guess too many or people want to see the sort of same brand whether they do that via or from sort of motivated by ego or whether it's because they think that the consumer uh, recognizing a brand above the, above the door is a good sales pitch have, have there been sort of um I guess time periods where you've looked at it and gone, my goodness, this is really complicated because it means that your, you know, your website, your headed paper, there's lots of advantages, I suppose, to things being called the same. Have you ever considered thinking, you know what, we should just make this more uh, bespoke and therefore ironically less bespoke? Or have you, you know, is there a reason why you're so adamant about keeping that sort well, of local story? I, I think there are two forces at work here. One, um, the group market seems to have finally cottoned on to the idea of having much looser branding imperatives attached to the business. So you now have signature hotels, you have autograph hotels, you have edition hotels. So they're allowing the local story to be much more prominently featured rather than just saying it's the Marriott at Junction 22. Um, so I think that's been going on. At the same time, we've been approached by a number of people saying we're already operating hotels uh, with, say, a Mercure or an Indigo or a um, an M gallery type of badge, um, but we don't have anybody to do the white label management. Would you please do that for us? So uh, we were very happy to do that. What, one of the, the, the biggest and most salient lessons for us is that we put a little investment cartel together to purchase a members club in London called Home House, which is in Portman Square. And we took the very deliberate decision that the brand recognition for that particular single asset was so strong that for us to put the bespoke name over the top would diminish it. So we very deliberately hid um, ourselves away 
So the way in which we reported the numbers, did the purchasing and so on, all that was fairly formulaic, and but it was hidden. So the consumer wouldn't see it. And we wanted the overarching brand to be home house unencumbered. And we've tried to follow that through as much as we can. We, we operate um, a hotel in Scotland called Carnoustie. Why would you want to call it something else when it's probably one of the most famous golf destinations in the world? Um, and so on. We're, we're, we've had a, a bit of a dilemma recently. We're building a new hotel next to Leicester Tigers Rugby Club because the great temptation is to call it the Tigers Lair or something like that. Um, and so, so it would be interesting to see. We're opening in two years' time. Maybe the market will have changed by then and we will change our minds. I don't know. But right now, we're rolling out the Brooklyn name and it'll be a, a Brooklyn with um, a business inside it, which is the food and beverage business, to be called the Lair. But they haven't kept up that that's on the premise that tigers live in lairs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it makes sense. So why do you think so many of the big brands then are, are you know, mimicking the smaller players and, and going for independence and trying to loosen up that brand? Uh, because they want the best of both worlds. The, the, the limiter for them sometimes is insisting on minimum room sizes, minimum air conditioning spec or whatever's in the, in the corporate manual. So we won't operate anything unless it has these basic features in place. Um, so a long time ago, Hilton said we're going to call a new group Doubletree, and they've rolled that, that out. So the two forces at work are that the big brands have needed to continue to grow, and they can't do that by only exporting very prescriptive brand standards. They have to loosen the, 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 the remit up a little bit to have more stock. At the same time, um, a lot of them have signed non-compete clauses. So if you take a look at um, Accor, for instance, I think the last time I looked, there was something close to 20 different brands in the group. Why? Well, if you've got an IBIS next to an IBIS style, it means that you don't have a non-compete clause preventing you from opening one next to the other. Um, so I know it sounds slightly cynical, but for a lot of the brands, it's all about ensuring that they don't trip themselves up and non-compete themselves out of being able to open a business up in a very strong destination. So they might have a two-star, a three-star, a four-star, and a five-star all next to each other in the same street, all sitting in different segmented brands, but in effect all part of the one company. Yeah, interesting. What do you think about the consumer choice? Do you think the consumer is is less inclined now to go for multinational brands and, and wants to uh, you know be seen at least or, or try and support independence, albeit they might be hidden in a different way, or is that less relevant? I think the online travel agency market has democratized everything. So Booking.com and Expedia now is such a go-to place to do your um, search for destination you'll just key in berlin or bournemouth and see what comes up and educate yourself through all the hard work that they've done to assemble really copious amounts of information into one place um so they make a very interesting and um, heavily researched uh, way of investigating an area and a range of hotels and i think people are much more informed because of the internet and therefore able to make up their mind so yes there's still a lot of brand loyalty but probably the biggest brand loyalty that is out there now is to the the two most powerful booking engines which is uh, booking.com and expedia and are they they friend or foe i I think an awful lot of operators see them as foe um, but if we take a look at the years 
I guess it was 2006, something like that, when the internet really exploded and Booking.com became a real powerhouse. It had been bubbling away for over 20 years, probably 22, 24 years ago now, maybe maybe slightly more, when they first arrived, and they were an interesting diversion. But as the internet has become all powerful, I think we're now faced with a situation where they're here to stay. They're so big, so dominant, you have to work with them. Um, and if you keep throwing mud in their face they're going to lash out at you and punish you so the best thing to do i think is get close to them make friends and make sure you're getting the best out of their systems any good tips on how to do that because i guess that the negative perspective of, of probably the some of the smaller players who are less tech savvy maybe at doing that is is obviously the commission's uh, that they charge and, and trying to uh, encourage people, I suppose, to bypass them and book direct. What's your experience of the best way to actually work with them rather than against them? Uh, well, make friends with people. Um, don't allow them to hide behind anonymous email addresses. Track someone down who's an account manager and will be responsible for your area or your quality of hotel and make that relationship as personal as you possibly can. Um, aside from that, I think going back to the 06 illustration, Prior to that time, if you had a hotel that was trading um, over 75% occupancy outside London, you were absolutely thrilled. Um, Prior to COVID-19, if you had those hotels trading at less than 85% occupancy, you were worried. And that's the power of the internet. So we might have lost a bit through margin, but we've gained a huge amount through occupancy. On its own, no hotel could distribute so widely and so vigorously to uh, such a democratic audience as you can do through the travel agents so your reach when you're trying to sell rooms very late on because you've you've just had a cancellation or whatever you try and do that as an independent without help you you just can't be that effective so yes you might have lost a bit on the margin because you're losing commission costs but at the same time i think in sheer sheer volume terms your occupancy levels will be much greater than they would be on on their own so swings and roundabouts Mm. Do you think overall it pushes pushes prices up or keeps prices low? Because do people need to charge, you know, pass on the cost of the commissions, or uh, I don't know, is there always a, a, a race to compete on price? And, always and actually- a race to compete. You would never get to unless you've got a, a real gift in good, which is exceptional for one particular, and you can just name your price. Everybody else is looking over their shoulder and constantly price gauging to see whether you're tracking above or below. What you see is your main competitor and i i think that transparency is something that was never there before but there's an awful lot more information in the marketplace that you can dig into what it has done is to make it essential for every general manager to become super fluent in revenue management and to understand the immediacy and the need to check your room rate and your availability on a an hourly basis in any one day it used to be something that people talked about as well we've got a talented reservationist that's not the point now. The, the real commanders-in-chief of hotels are, are revenue specialists. Yeah, okay, interesting. Thank you. <laughs> um, so back to the, the business, you and Hayden, uh, your your business partner, um, you knew Hayden before Bespoke, did you? How did you get to know each other? Uh, well, we'd known each other for some time. I, I first met his, his father. Hayden's a bit younger than me, um, and uh, his father decided he wanted to buy a hotel for his daughter, uh, in the Bath area and rang me for some advice about the local market. He ended up buying the hotel. Um, sadly, the marriage of his daughter and her then husband um, drifted. So Hayden stepped into the family business at that point. Um, 
and uh, I got to know him more uh, clearly from there. We struck a chord straight away. Uh, I was then invited to join him as a non-exec for his first hotel in um, in Stratford, and uh, a month later we set up the management company and said, off we go. The good thing is that the relationship is quite simple. I tend to look at the top line of a business and work downwards. He always looks at the bottom line of the business and works upwards, so we meet in the middle. Um, but, of course, it's much more about the team we built around us now. It's it's not the Hayden and Robin show any longer. We've got um, some very, very strong senior personnel on the board. Uh, we have an in-house legal counsel now, and we've got a, a head of pretty much every internal discipline who are infinitely much better at each specialist subject than I would ever be. So we have a head of sales, a head of marketing, head of purchasing, head of HR, and, and, and so on. And that's what you need to be able to uh, affect the hotel's competently uh, as what is something that's over 100 hotels in the group now in the UK. Yeah, 100 hotels. How many How many staff? Uh, 7,200 with the last count. Wow, okay. Most of whom have presumably been furloughed over the last few months, yeah, have they? We, we furloughed them and then unfurloughed them. We've, we've had a sort of staccato approach to this because we very quickly realised that we had to have some personnel available to deal with with the inquiries, the deposit um, handling, the, the, the postponement of bookings and so on. So we didn't blanket um, everybody absolutely on furlough. We brought people back by rotation to be in each business to answer those sorts of questions. And the good news is that by doing that, we've been managed, we've managed to be able to get some business back on the books really quickly from the moment the government said, you can start trading again. So um, I'm still astonished at this figure, but in the week between the government saying you can open on the 4th of July, um, um, seven days later, we'd written half a million pounds worth of business, not for the first few days, but across the first quarter. So um, that just shows you how much pent-up demand was, was, was there waiting to come back. Yeah, that's, that's a good sign, isn't it? So is this... Uh the staycation kind of Britain idea that we're, we're seeing in the press? Do you think it's a reality? or? Well, in my crystal ball, I think the coastal hotels and the bucolic country hotels will trade okay, mainly driven by a leisure market, part family, part uh, retired. Um, the proof of the pudding is going to be September. If corporate Britain doesn't wake up and is still stuck in a Zoom conference for the rest of the winter, then we're never going to get our hotels back up and running because that's where the Monday to Thursday volume is going to be out of season. And the business mix, mix, the business mix needs to change through uh, the, the, the last three months. Quite who's going to be organising Christmas parties with confidence this year, I just don't know. We've got a lot of Christmas party provisional bookings waiting to find out whether we're allowed to have Christmas parties in the sort of fashion that we used to. Um, and not December is the one month of the year when hotels really, really make money. Um, so cash flow is going to be of the most paramount importance for all our businesses this winter. Um, do I feel the government have got a handle on it? Well, one or two of them have, but uh, an awful lot, including our prime minister, is is proving hugely uninspiring in terms of his ability to give a clear message to the people and show some intellect and study. Um, and I don't want him hearing this, uh, not that he would, but... Um, I'm sure he's a listener, Robin. I don't doubt it for a second. He will be now. <laughs> he will be now. 
Yeah. Uh, you, and, and when you talk about the government's competence in this, do you mean from a sort of uh, actually understanding the scale of the challenge, I suppose, and, and specifically in hospitality? Or do you just mean from a, having the competence, you know, that they, they get the challenge, but they just don't know what to do about it or both? It's the ability to string a sentence together. Um, Johnson has proved unbelievably inept at making sense. You could give him a simple message and he seems somehow to strangle the thing and you're not quite sure what he's intended by the end of the completion of that sentence. Where I think the Chancellor has done a lot of listening, I have to applaud a lady called Kate Nichols from UK Hospitality who's spoken on our collective behalf as of a very strident, singular voice. And I think she's been brilliant in terms of getting Rich, uh, Ricky Sunak to listen in and say, look, you need to you need to lower VAT, you need a Monday to Wednesday incentive. The most recent incentives he's put into the hospitality industry are a direct result of the lobbying that's been taking place. So to hear some results from a, a listening part of the party is wonderful. Um, it's, and I don't think hospitality as a sector has ever been as heard uh, unilaterally as it's ever been before. And that, no. that that's a perverse benefit to come out of this awful lockdown. Yeah, I agree. I think I hope so, and I, and I hope so from a consumer perspective. I, I, you know, I think we've take for granted our, our sort of bars and our restaurants and hotels, and never really given them a huge amount of thought. And I think there's a lot of perception that you know you can go into a supermarket and, and and buy the ingredients for a meal for next to nothing, but have to pay a significant amount of cash for it in a restaurant. And, and I think people just presumed that all the bars and restaurants in the country were making an absolute fortune. So I'm hoping there might be a little bit more understanding and a little bit more public support that comes off the back of this. And I, th- I think we've done ourselves proud particularly with you know sort of helping the nhs and even though the industry has been on its knees it's fundamentally been out there doing what we do which is which is looking after people because that's built into the dna uh, of hospitality and kate's been on the podcast actually and and uh, i'd say almost every episode that i record her name comes up and uh, yeah they've they've done a, a, a sterling job uk hospitality and, and it's nice to see people like rishi some of the some of the solutions they've come up with like a monday to wednesday incentive are savvy enough that clearly it's showing some some understanding i suppose of the challenges of our industry however um the sword of damocles will come down if corporate britain doesn't wake up and start saying i'm going to get out of bed and go to work um then no matter what the chancellor does and everybody else does we're just going to be comatose and the company the country will go bankrupt it's just it's just frightening because it's just so marginal every every restaurant operator almost inevitably has a landlord the landlord needs his rent the, hotel, the restaurant needs to be able to generate the money to pay the rent. If those two taps are turned off, there's war between the two. Um, what happens in September when the moratorium ends in terms of landlords being actively able to pursue tenants? I don't know. The Chancellor may need to postpone it still further, but um, there, there could be an absolute bloodbath this winter, real bloodbath. Mm. I agree. What's the solution on rents then? Because the, the, the sort of the, yeah, the forfeiture moratorium, the sort of constant holding position uh, is unsustainable long term, I guess, even from the landlord's perspective. Certainly a lot of tenants are using that moratorium and, and either not paying or entering into negotiations. Have you seen any particularly good solutions? Well, my only solution would be to, 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 to tag the default onto the end of a, a lease and amortize it over the unexpired period of the lease. So typically if you took a pub or a hotel lease, it's probably somewhere between 20 and 30 years. Um, so if you if you lose X amount of money over a six-month period during 2020, can that be recovered um, and profiled? At a, let, let's say it's a million pounds. Can you 
you pay off that amount over 20 years at 50,000 a year and catch up that way. But uh, that would involve a huge amount of complexity for the government then trying to work out who the lenders were to the to the owners and the owner's relationship with the with the tenant would then need to be more transparent and so on. The legacy of this probably is that for new leasehold agreements, I think in almost inevitably the owners will want more transparency and they'll want to be much closer to the upside of the business. So rather than just saying it's a fixed three months in advance rent, um, we'll probably end up with turnover rents as being much more likely formula um, and rents being paid on a monthly basis as you go, run three months in advance. Um, but we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Mm. Yeah, it's complicated. I feel for the government in that sense. It's uh, yeah, the, the, the rental one looks like a big challenge just too much complexity things like the uh, and i can't remember what he's called it but this sort of uh bonus i suppose for keeping your employees retained until the end of january what's your thoughts on that as a tactic waste of time complete waste of time um anybody has already made the redundancies um already um i i just don't think it's going to have any effect at all um, it's it's a nice to have but in material terms i think it it's paying lip service to the real issue uh, and the real issue is that we're so tentative about um, put business on the books as we come out of lockdown right now um, that you're having to lay off staff and mitigate the potential cost and say, yeah, you might be able to come back for a job, but you remember when you were full-time, I can't guarantee full-time work anymore, so you can come back and work part-time if you want or restricted hours. So it's creating a huge disenfranchised workforce where they've got a lot of part-time jobs or no jobs at all. Um, so I think we, I think it's uh, seismic in terms of the change we're about to have, just because of lockdown. If we then compound that with Brexit, um, and the madness that's going on at the moment with with Brexit, please tell me someone who voted for Brexit with No Deal. If someone had said that it's either stay with with you or Brexit with No Deal, I cannot imagine any intelligent person would have voted for it. And that's what we're going to end up with is a No Deal Brexit. Um, yeah. We could do another two hours on that, Robin. Yeah, <laughs> but you're on the. What I'm saying is that we can talk about lockdown, but as soon as we get to September, the next monster on the horizon is the reality of of this massive train hurtling down the track towards us called Brexit, and nobody's got breaks. Mm. Yeah, you're you're right. Um, staying on something that maybe is mildly more resolvable because I don't have the answers to that one, but this idea, you're absolutely right, that anybody who is coming back into hospitality or a significant proportion of them are probably being offered the chance to come back on an hourly wage you know, rather than on a salary because just nobody can predict the future. Do you think the furlough scheme should be extended or is it is it an unaffordable solution for the country? We can't keep going with furlough. We need to wean the countryside back off furlough, but we also need to convince everybody that it's safe to go back to work. And we need some clear messages about whether Michael Gove should be uh, wearing a mask in Pret-a-Manger or outside Pret-a-Manger the next time he's doing a sand bite through a non-existent mask to the press. But that's where I, what I mean about clear messaging. There isn't. It's 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 very confused as to what we should have put masks in as mandatory uh, across the country um, in January, let alone now. Um, so anything that makes us safe and prevents us transferring COVID to other people is a good thing. But uh, my nervousness is that um, a lot of people will have scared themselves so witless that they won't venture out of the house again. 
and we just won't be engaging and, and creating business as we always have done in the centuries in the past. And I think the deep freeze will be an incredibly slow process. So something significant needs to take place September or October to transfuse a new burst of energy into our optimism and give us the cause to believe that we're going to be okay and we can get back to normal trading. But you're seeing yeah. it in the car industry, you're seeing it in the high street, you're seeing it in pubs. You're not seeing it in clubs because clubs aren't open. You're just going to see it in spas and health clubs. Um, golf clubs are still doing okay. Um, but the, the winter months when we're restricted to being indoors so much more uh, will be very telling. Yeah, I agree. I think the winter is going to be very challenging. I've my I've got a couple of restaurants that are very fortunate to have plenty of outside space. So at the moment, doors, windows open, lots of space on the terrace. Everybody's got lots of room. Uh, but I think it's going to be a very different scenario come autumn. Um, how much of your portfolio have you uh, opened so far then? Uh, we've opened, we opened 18 hotels so far. We do another 10 this weekend. Sorry, from Friday. Um, and we're, we're dribbling them out over time. There's a, a few that we won't open until February of next year because um, the, the, the business on the books was almost wholly dominated by coach party business. The leading coach party companies have gone bust and ferrying 70-year-olds uh, around in big buses on fortnightly holidays all over the UK is not terribly popular at the moment. So there isn't an, an automatic audience for a place that the coach party trips with so for some of our destinations that would be the lion's share of where the business historically has come from so we need to reimagine those businesses and that's why we're taking our time hmm. so with those ones that you're effectively mothballing for a longer period of time what do you do with the teams can you re-employ them elsewhere or is it literally just a case of recruiting from scratch when you look to reopen them uh, well in some cases they are new hotels to us in that we're picking up hotels which have already gone and all the staff have been laid off. So um, part of the transformation for us is that we've lost a couple of hotels that clearly don't want to trade again because of the owner's decision, uh, but we've also gained a lot of hotels into our group and we can make an announcement about that in the next week or so. Um, and part of our reopening of our existing estate is going to be blended with reopening uh, and what is to us a new estate uh, with a very distinct business mix inside it. Okay, so there are some opportunities in the chaos then? And, and there'll be more, and I take no joy from saying this, but the, the recovery specialists are all salivating at the, at the, at the mouth at the moment with the thought of uh, businesses that are going to go pop this winter and how they're going to be instructed to help with recovery or administration. So um, administrators will be the busiest sector, I would imagine, over the next six to nine months yeah some, somebody always gains the um the 18 that you've reopened so far then what's your uh, experience i suppose both from a demand from a customer behavior how are the team coping is it has it been a reasonably positive any any kind of key nuggets i suppose that you've learned in those early days the weekend trade has picked up really quickly so the leisure friday night saturday night leisurely sunday that seems to have picked up uh, to almost 100 percent occupancy straight away which is great Monday to Thursday taking longer to to trickle through. Coastal hotels seems to have been the ones where people have said, I'm not going to Spain this year, but I am going to take a, a, a staycation somewhere with a nice sea view. Uh, country hotels are the next ones to recover uh, in, in terms of an internal holiday with family facilities and so on. And then the ones that I'm perhaps most worried about are the city centre ones where 
Uh, we've started to reopen a few of those simply because we've done quite a lot of pre-marketing and have got some decent business on the books. Um, and we'll see um, where we've got more than one hotel in any one destination like Chester or Manchester, for instance, our approach is to open one asset at a time, learn the lessons and then open the next one rather than dumping all the room stock into uh, a marketplace where uh, there's low occupancy. Um, so there we are. That's... Oh, do you need to get that, Robin? Oh, I've just silenced it. I'm sorry. I didn't realize it. That's, that's all right. No, no problem at all. Glad it wasn't a fire alarm. Um, okay. So, yeah. So, so Pete, and, and, and I get the operational sort of changes that you've made then. So you, one, you've got the demand side, but you've also got the supply side. Uh, is, is it costing more? What, are there any sort of particularly significant things that you're having to do differently now than, than before? An awful lot of it is body language and training. So we've done a huge amount of um, work to create the COVID charter. Uh, we've then embedded that into relentless training with all the, the staff, brought them back off for non-furlough days in order to attend the COVID training. Most of that's been done remotely. And then prior to opening the hotels um, in July, uh, we've, we've been running refresher campaigns and uh, rehearsals. And, and by rehearsals, I mean... This is the way you acknowledge or greet someone at reception. This is where you cite your hand lotion and your face mask. Uh, this is how you escort a, a guest to the lift. Um, this is how you carry the bags. Um, and these are the gloves that you wear to do it and so on. Um, what I've always looked forward to is the day when a hotelier could tell the customer exactly what time they should eat breakfast and what time they should leave the table to as well. So I'm gearing up to spend more time doing that because the uh, for years, I've, I've witnessed customers all coming down at the same time on a Sunday morning in our hotels and saying, I want breakfast now. And why aren't there empty places for me when the place is just looks like a bomb has hit it? So amusingly, I think there might be some moments of warmth there. Um, what I have been really heartened by is the natural hosting skills and warmth of our team has come to the fore. And we've been met unilaterally by a really enthused response and and, and and the clause from the customers saying, I can really see you've, you've put the effort in, I see you care, I can see you're trying, um, and thank you so much. So, uh, it, yes, it does feel more medicalized, yes, it does feel more airport loungy, uh, but uh, in terms of uh, return emotionally and engagement with the guests, I've, I've been really heartened by how quickly and how grateful they, they've taken to it. That's good. Are your team wearing masks? Or? Yeah, yeah, we are uh, wearing masks, uh, gloves uh, frequently being changed, hand lotion being applied, and then a relentless regime of going back into the high contact switch plate areas like door handles and so on and, and cleaning those down a lot throughout the day. But the problem is you cannot get um, to every door handle every time a guest goes through it. Um, it's, it's just physically impossible. So you just, as a customer, you've got to take a view. Um what we are not doing is shaking hands or embracing people and um, we're being very careful about how we space people um, either outside or or by putting a table or a, a bar stool between one setting and another so that you've got that spacing interestingly i had lunch with a guest yesterday and there were three of us at the table so two of us sat on one table and he sat on his own on the on the, on the second table and we maintained about a meter and a half between us so and it didn't feel abnormal. We 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 felt fine with it. 
Yeah, it's amazing how quickly we adapt, I think, isn't it? Those um, quite a lot of additional costs there in, in what certainly in the restaurant side has been tight margin, maybe a little bit more to give in some of the bigger hotel side. Is is that what the VAT cut is for to help with those costs or is that for the consumer? Um, our view is it's for us. And I'm sorry if that sounds vain and selfish, but um, we need all the help we can get to put the provision in place and we're going to have um, customers uh, not turning up in the volume that we're used to in the past. So it's incredibly marginal. I noticed some of the high street notables are offering immediate discounts on, on food and drink. I see Weatherspoons are wrapping up a, a discount on uh, soft drinks into a discount across their all their offerings, which is, is a bit confusing to the customer. Um, but uh, no, we're, we're unashamedly saying thank you. We're maintaining our pricing. And we're going to use this to make sure you're extra safe. I'm specifically invested in PPE and, and the cleaning regimes. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I think you know, we've, we've opened with more costs, with less supply. We've been shut down for three or four months. I think it's it's you know it's still going to be touch and go for the industry to get through it. So much of the industry isn't going to get through it. And, and I see that VAT cut as a way to help. And I, I do think it's frustrating when some of the big brands that uh, yeah are making enough cash potentially not to have to worry about it do start discounting booze and, uh, and claiming it's because of the VAT cut. Because like you say, it muddies the water for the consumer, I think. But going back to the local story, if someone's said to me would you be prepared to pay a little bit more in order to keep that local facility going which you take advantage of then i'd, I'd say yes I, I would be prepared to i would understand it i don't expect that person to discount massively to tease me back to them i want them to succeed and to be able to continue to offer the service that they used to do outstandingly well in the past so uh, i'm going to pick and choose who i want to support because that's it's my pound and i would imagine a lot of our customers will think in the same way but um I don't think we should be apologizing for taking that VAT uh, cut and putting it to good use within our business in order to survive. Yeah, no, I agree. So you've been through the uh, the big sort of recession in 88, as you mentioned, the bovine kind of cattle disease. You've been through some massive shifts in the industry before. How does this one compare? We keep you know, hearing words like uh, unprecedented and catastrophic, but how are you feeling about its impact compared to the other things you've been through? Uh, I, I think all the others um, were equally horrid at the beginning, but this is the first one where we've had to behave in such a way that we acknowledge that we ourselves could be a lethal weapon. We may be harboring this illness and carrying it and giving it to other people, not knowing that that's what we're doing. So... Uh, I don't think we've ever been faced with that kind of new augmented reality before. Um, I, I think public confidence is such a brittle thing that we'll have to wait for um, uh, the proof to see that that's coming back. Once it does, I think things will repair quite quickly. But we've got to start talking ourselves back into that now. And I suppose the paradox for the rest of the National Health Service is we overgeared so much on in anticipation of horrendous uh, occupancy of beds by COVID sufferers that people expecting routine cancer appointments and so on have delayed and delayed and an awful lot of people may pass simply because they weren't getting their regular checkups or or help there. So I I feel much more sceptical about this time and if you then compound it with Brexit, um, surely um, this, this is a time where we should be postponing and seeking all the friends we can but to be making divisive relationships, more divisive with Europe, um, denying PPE equipment from Europe, denying um, healthcare 
collaboration just seems madness to me. So I'm, I'm more worried about this one than I've ever been, quite honestly. Paradoxically, when we had the last main recession in 08, uh, whilst it felt terrible going into it, for us as a business and a business model, we picked up a huge amount of business from other distress. So the recession, uh, in terms of growing our estate, turned out to be quite a kind thing for us. Um, and I wish I could say the same this time around. I don't see that level of opportunism because I don't think it's a question of moving from one operator to another. I think an awful lot of businesses just won't recover. I think a lot of chains, uh, whether it's Byron or even Pizza Express, I think a lot of those businesses won't reopen. Um, and what happens? How do you repurpose the high street? How do you um, repurpose hotels? Do they become apartments? Do they become housing? Um, we, we had a malaise in the high street anyway, generally, right the way across Britain. Even the charity shops are closing down. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think there's such a shift in society taking place in the 3D world. Brexit, COVID, death of the high street, put all those together in the mixer and it's, it's a hell of a cocktail. It is, isn't it? This isn't going to be a comedy broadcast, this one, is it, Robin? My goodness. <laughs> You're terribly gloomy, but I, I, yeah. I'll be, I'll be, yeah, hold tight. Everything's going to be fine. But I just, I, I actually see this winter getting worse before it gets better. Yeah, likewise. I think hospitality will come through in in some guys. We've we've been through, you know, we've, there's been there's been wars and all sorts of people fundamentally like eating and drinking and going away. It's the time I think, which is the bit that's hard to be positive on at the moment, isn't it? I think I think the winter is going to be really hard, and uh, yeah, we're certainly not expecting to trade in any way profitably until next summer. And it's just a case of hanging on for dear life and trying to navigate the winter. But I think that's going to be tough. Well, certainly the conversation that we've had with our lenders has been most encouraging, where where we've got senior debt from banks. Um, their pragmatic view is that we don't expect normal trading to come back until 2022. So all the traditional measures like loan-to-value and, and ways in which they would um, quantify their, their debt in a business, they're putting a moratorium around and saying, look, it's incidental until we come out of this. It, it's irrelevant. We just have to take a mid-term view rather than a short-term view. So that is encouraging. But um, I happen to sit on the board of one particular individual hotel company was Luke Johnson, who writes regularly on the Times. And his message is really clear. Stop being so petrified. Get back out there. Take some risks. Make things happen. Let's get back to work. And I think he's right. We've got to be incredibly brave if we're going to get over this, this malaise. Mm. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. But you're also absolutely right that we've never been, you know, hospitality is a wonderful industry, isn't it? And the fact that we're just there to make people happy and provide opportunities for them to spend times with loved ones and friends and families and anniversaries and birthdays. Never before have we been in a position of potentially making anything worse. And I think that's the tightrope that's difficult, isn't it? That, that people don't just say, well, look, you're biased because we're clearly trying to encourage people out uh, and to live a life. Um, yeah, that might be adding to the problem, which is a little bit, I suppose, like Rishi's uh, d dinner on Rishi that's coming up, isn't it? So, get, you know, encouraging people into bars and restaurants for the month of August. Yeah. Uh, I guess there'll be a lot of people who think that's fantastic, but a lot of people will think that he's just forcing people into um, crowded spaces and is going to make the situation worse. Have you got any thoughts on that? At the moment, he seems to be the most grown-up um, member of that cabinet. So uh, I'm, I'm I'm, I'm pleased he's there. He does seem to be articulate. He does seem to be measured. And he certainly seems to have some grasp on the details. So by comparison with the rest of his colleagues, I'm, I'm delighted to see that someone of some intellect and apparent integrity appears to be doing the most important job, which is steering the, 
finance it. Um, so long may it last. The good news is that it, you've seen the speed with which some of these measures come in. If more are needed, I think he will adjust and I think he will listen. Um, so I, I have some confidence that whilst there may not be more furlough, I think there will be more quantitative easing and all these other measures taking place. But whether he's then got the strength of Hercules to, to take on Brexit as well, I can't. Um, guarantee that Boris and Rishi both listen to the podcast. I can probably try and get one of them, uh, Robin, well, but I can't, I, can't, I can't guarantee I, both. I should have been regaling, regaling you with bonkers stories from my past experience in hotels, and I've just made you terribly unhappy. And <laughs> call the Samaritans quick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's all it's it's all over. No, um, I, I appreciate you. Like I say, you've been doing this a long time. You've got a, a divorce, diverse portfolio, and and I wanted to get your perspective. Um, you are normally very good at putting a positive spin on things because you do happen to have a uh, a five star uh, rated book, don't you? On uh, on Amazon, a solitary confinement. By which the the feedback uh, on that is exemplary, isn't it? Lots of people found your your take uh, heartwarming and entertaining. Uh, can you just explain to people what what's that book about? And if you get some downtime over the winter, if the hotel business is a bit tricky, maybe you could write another book. Uh, well, I have written another book, or rather, I've I've written the sex scenes to go into another book. I thought, what do I need here more than I've had before? There were no sex scenes in my first book, and uh, publishers always say you need a sex scene or two. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, I've written I've written I've written the skeleton of a book, and I'm thoroughly enjoying doing it. Um, at the same time, I've also gone back and done my ancestry and got back to 1380, which has been quite a shock, including wow. the ladies and all the inbreeding and everything else that goes in there. So um, I found out all sorts of things I never knew about my family tree. So, um, but no, I, I think it's a, it, it's a, it's a time of great uh, backbone is required. And what happened to me all those years ago is that uh, around about December 04, I uh, had just completed a business deal which in terms of stress, had been um, stressing me to the absolute max. The deal went through and my body just said, time for a rest, and I didn't listen. So I got to uh, fingertips um, tingling and toes tingling and didn't really realise what was going on. I thought it was a big cold, uh, but in a very short space of time, I contracted something called Guillain-Barré syndrome, uh, which is a paralysing illness. So I went from having full motor control of my body to being completely paralyzed from the neck downwards uh, in a 24-hour period. Um, I passed out on Christmas Eve in the RUH hospital in Bath. I woke up the following day thinking, I don't know whether I'm dead or alive. Uh, I had a ventilator stuffed through my neck. And as I came off the, um, uh, the, the, the sort of sleep-inducing tablets they'd given me, I thought, well, if I come to heaven, surely it's going to be something joyful, something a bit of Beethoven maybe. But no, it was Noddy Holder singing, so here it is, Merry Christmas, everybody's having fun. And I saw these nurses with antlers on their head wandering around me. I thought, I have gone to the wrong place, definitely. <laughs> um, and I was literally trapped in a bed for 10 months, unable to move anything for myself. I couldn't breathe support unsupported. I had to be fed through my nose. I couldn't wipe my own bottom. I, I couldn't feel my hands. I, I was completely paralyzed. So it was a really horrifying time. However, when you're sitting in a ward for six months with a similar crowd of people, and the guy in the far corner has got motor neurone and the guy next to you has got MS relapsing and remitting, you think, well, hang on a minute. 
I've got an illness that I might make some sort of recovery from. So I'm I'm the rich guy here. These other guys have only going to get worse, and I've got a chance of, of getting back. So over a two-year period, I, I learned how to sit, how to stand, how to walk, and how to breathe. Um, I must admit, when they said your breathing's likely to give out, I was a little affronted because I thought, hang on, I've, I'm good at breathing. I've I've done a lot of breathing. I've practiced breathing. I'm, I'm, it, it's, it's easy as breathing. I can do it. Um, so to have a, um, a, a, a that sort of um, have a up here. <laughs> that's a new noise. Sorry, it's my PA trying to get hold of me. Um, uh, that we're very nearly done. I have overrun. My apologies, but I was enjoying your uh, description. Anyway, look, I'll wrap the story up. Um, so it was a, a, a dreadful time. You learn things about yourself and other people. Um, I've managed to bludgeon every single friendship I've ever made into buying a copy of the book and saying nice things on Amazon. So we've sold, I don't know, 45,000 books, something like that. And it's raised a bit of money for the charity of what is a very obscure illness. But for those who've been affected by it, it's a debilitating, long-lasting, pernicious uh, illness and to recover. has made me much more phlegmatic about things, made me a nicer person. I'm I'm sure of that. Um, But you are left as a permanent legacy with a constant sense of tiredness your your old nerves don't exist anymore your body's firing up new nerves and they're not never going to be as strong as the original nerves so doing motor control and basic items are turning a, a jar on a, a, a pot of marmalade or something like that those are much more difficult to to do so wow that's incredible how, how much of that recovery is is down to your mental strength rather than your physical strength uh, I, I think I was very fortunate. If I if I'd been my mother, I would have just stayed in bed and worried myself to death. But my father was always a brighter, later kind of bloke, and I think I inherited that constitution. So it never occurred to me that um, I wouldn't make a recovery, that I wouldn't get back to work. But there was a sort of um, crossroads where I had become sort of the most competent in the disabled world I was living in, um, and made a transition into an able-bodied world where I was immediately bottom of the class and the worst at everything, but at least I was in that class. Which has spurred me on to the last thing I would just like to talk to you about, which is that um, in 2016 we set up what is now called the Blue Badge Access Awards because I think historically hotels have been pretty crap at anticipating the needs of the disabled and those who are compromised in their life. So we wanted to celebrate those who are doing good things and last uh, winter, I was at an awards dinner with a thousand other people at Grosvenor House, and I had a chance to speak about the subject. And I asked everyone in the audience to appoint an access champion in their hotel or restaurant to do, to get the subject onto the agenda so that people thought not about how to satisfy statute and the law uh, regarding um, what is right and wrong in, in uh, our provision for disabled, but to put some joy and some spirit and some elegance into what we do with our disabled facilities so take the christmas decorations out of the disabled bog and make them smart and clean um, build a, a disabled suite so that someone can ask for an upgrade to a disabled room run a downgrade and bless them uh, the one thing in terms of the message about having an access champion the following day following that dinner uh, glenn eagles md rang me and said oh robin i did actually hear what you said, and I've just appointed an access champion this morning at nine o'clock. So I'm delighted that someone in the room was listening. 
Yeah, so amazing. Well, well nobody better positioned to bang that drum than you, is there? So well done for doing it. Well, I do go on about it a bit much, but uh, whenever we get a bit sort of downhearted about our lot during lockdown as able-bodied people, we do have to remember there's always someone worse off than you. And even though you feel quite blue, I think helping others to have a better life is a very important thing for us all. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think it's a good it's a good message, and uh, that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up. I suppose is despite your uh, I'm going to say realism rather than pessimism. Certainly on 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 this winter, uh, having been through something like that, it, it must give you a constant uh, perspective and gratitude. I suppose that yeah, things things can be worse, and we should, as you say, I suppose we should all get out there and try and live a life and spend a few quid uh, and support bars and restaurants and lots of other businesses and try and get the economy going. So look, thank you so much for sparing the time today, uh, Robin, to chat. Very much appreciated. Where should people go if they want to follow your uh, adventures? Is there a particular social media sort of channel or website they should go to if they want to find out more about you and your business? The Twitter feed for me is at alfresco12. Um, If they want to find out more about Bespoke Hotels, then it's simply bespokehotels.com. And if they want to find out about um, uh, the Access Awards, then it's bluebadgeaccessawards.co.uk. Amazing. Okay, well, I will pop some links up on the uh, on the show notes that go with this podcast as well so that people can find that easily. But uh, best of luck navigating through and getting the rest of your portfolio uh, reopened. Uh, yeah, I hope it goes well. Mark, you've got your own um, businesses to, to get going again, and I wish you every success with those. So thank you for today. Yeah, no problem at all. You're absolutely right. That's what I should be focused on. But thank you for the distraction. I, I, I like to hear that. Yeah, I'm not the only one going insane in the in the lovely world of hospitality. So thanks for sparing the time. All right. Take care. Now. Thank you. So there you have it, an emotional roller coaster. Robin really knows his stuff, and we are very wise to listen to his perspectives. Bespoke have some incredible venues, and I'm sure they'll find a way to navigate through. Robin's even finding some opportunities in the chaos. Just head over to humansofhospitality.co.uk and you'll find links to Robin's Twitter account, the Bespoke website and the Access Awards that he mentioned. And lastly, a quick favour, please, please, please pick up the device you are listening on, scroll down to the review section for this podcast and hit the five star button and press submit. Or even better, leave a few positive words. It really helps get those pesky algorithms get this podcast listened to by more people, meaning there is more chance I can find some other awesome humans for you to enjoy. Thank you so much, and I'll be back again soon.